Hi everyone, I'm Dan Harding, Editor-in-Chief of Power Motor Yacht, welcoming you back to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast, your home for the best stories in boating. I'd like to kick things off today with a quick shout out to our sponsor, Atlantis Marine Finance. When it comes to getting a loan for your new boat, there's a lot of options out there, but not all are created equal. Atlantis Marine Finances focuses solely on the boat and yacht space and understands the complexities that sometimes come with boat buying. For more information on financing your dream boat, head on over to AtlantisMarineFinance.com. Now, on to the episode. This is Chris Dixon with Power & Motor Yacht. I'm chatting with Robert Brown, a longtime surf photographer who I'm profiling for the magazine and have also shared several adventures with through the years. And I thought it would be interesting for our podcast to just talk to Rob about his interesting life and career photographing the biggest waves on earth, frankly, and and some of the most crazy surfers on earth. And I think Rob has a, a really unique perspective on boating as well, because he has boated out into some of the heaviest conditions that you could possibly hope for or hope not to have, but he's, but he's been out there in them. So uh, without further ado, Rob, let's talk a little bit about your youth growing up here in California, how you got into surfing and then how you got into to boating and also filming, if I'm not mistaken, boat racing and stuff like that too, yeah, right? Yeah, everything. Yeah. So well, yeah. Well, in a nutshell, I just, as a photographer, I wanted it to be varied, you know, to do everything. I did. I just absolutely did not want to be just a surf photographer because mm. I knew it was pretty seasonal, especially when I got into the big wave stuff later in life. That was 20 or something. I, I, I was a surfer growing up. Grew up I lived across the street from Doheny when I was eight years old. Mm, okay. So my first surfing was there. And then I went to uh, elementary school, junior high, and all that here. And then Dana Hills High School. And Dana Hills High School, where my wife actually went to. Yeah. And how old are you now, Rob? 64. 64. So you. So I would have graduated in 1977 if I had graduated, but I took an early leave and got the certificate or whatever mm-hmm. to get out, which was a mistake at the time. I shouldn't have done it, but still, you learn from things. And bottom line is I was surfing and I started taking pictures and I used my brother's camera and drowned it at Doheny. Really? Yeah, I set it on the <laughs> ground and put it on a towel to grab a guy's board from hitting the rocks at, at uh, what they call the hammer, that little rock outcropping. Mm-hmm. And the board was going to hit it, so I grabbed it and I looked up and a little surge came up around the camera and it was devastating. It was an SLR camera, one of the first ones, like a Pentax or hmm. something. And my old, the next oldest brother owned it and I had to get it fixed for him. I couldn't just leave it. So that cost me, I think, $300, which was you know about 25 grand at the time to me <laughs> right <laughs> so so i got it fixed or repaired whatever happened by being a bus boy in dana point harbor at the castaways restaurant and we all worked there my mom worked there and everybody worked there so i started surfing doheny could walk across the street made my own little surfboard and stuff but then i was starting to take pictures and all of a sudden i, I kind of wanted to be a sports photographer not, I just couldn't stand the idea of being either a portrait photographer or a wedding photographer. Mm-hmm. It's just not not going to happen. I just couldn't stand it. But you had the photo bug. You just yeah, I to wanted, to, I wanted to do action, and I got a. I really did get pretty successful at it quickly. I had Larry Flame Moore. Yeah, tell 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 our listeners who who Flame was. He's kind of a legend in the surf world. Legend psycho. Yeah, yeah. He was the photo editor of Surfing Magazine. Highly competitive, highly secretive, 
a great helper to young photographers, give you advice, but he would put it out in little doses. He was like a crack addict kind of thing, you know, <laughs> give you a little dose of how to do it and then some positive feedback if you were doing good. So I got into magazines, got photos in magazines really quick. Where were you? Where were your photos at that point being taken? Like where were you shooting at local surfers here in Southern um, Salt Creek, and then, well, luckily, I had a Hobie Power skiff, a 13-foot little Hobie Power skiff, because Hobie Alter lived here. And yeah. So I was doing photography for Hobie um, for the uh, race boats. No kidding. Yeah, so oh, my wow. brothers all raced. So Coleman owned a company at the time, so I started taking pictures for the racing, and I got, they had a, a magazine called Hobie Hotline. Mm-hmm. So they had a budget and they took me to Corpus Christi, Texas for nationals and all over the place. So all of a sudden I'm doing their covers all the time. I'm doing their calendars. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a, a lot of Hobie catting and then I started shooting sailing because I had a boat. So I got the power skiff from them and that was my first boat out of seven or eight boats I owned. That was the first one. Mm-hmm. So Flame got me when he first discovered taking pictures of Todos Santos down in Mexico. That's a big wave spot off of, off of Ensenada, um, which, which became, when did it, when did Todos, because Todos Santos, if I'm not mistaken, became sort of the first legit big wave that we knew of along the sort of Northern Baja, California coast. Anywhere off of, out of sight of Hawaii. Outside of Hawaii. It it was, Mavericks wasn't really discovered yet. And it was the first pictures of Tom Curran there with Flame. It was like 12 to 15 foot. The cover was beautiful, but it was jaw dropping. Mm -hmm. We couldn't believe anything here was that size. And it was one of the specks of water that hit the side of the boat at Cortez yesterday. That's how small it was compared to what we saw yesterday. But the bottom line is we actually launched by power skiff. We went all the way past Ensenada Mm. to the closest point to Ensenada to get out to the islands and launched it in the dark on a concrete launch ramp set it on the ramp jumped in he jumped in his gear and i pushed it when the surge came up we shoved it in damn dropped the little 70 horse yamaha down fired it up and drove out through the waves to get out there in the dark it and how heavy. many how many I've, I've made this passage but describe this passage to people who haven't done it particularly doing it in a skiff to well, get out to toto santos it can be it can be everything just like all waterways you know it can be smooth Luckily, it was light when we got out past the shore break. I knew the area pretty good from going to boat racing there. Mm. But still, as I look back on it, it was nuts because it was like <laughs> these concrete walkways that led down this path. So we set the boat on the concrete <laughs> and kind of just stood behind it with him in it. And I shoved it when the surge came up and bounced it on the concrete a little and rode it down and jumped in and reached back and lifted that little handle on the outboards without tilt. And just dropped it down and probably rototilled half the way out. But <laughs> so, and I came in there too through now a filled in swell. So it was, that was insane, but I loved it. Once I got out there, got some pictures. So I hit Toto's for 35 years probably and wow. saw it the biggest it's ever been that we've taken pictures of on December 21st, the first of. Was it oh five? I think. Yeah, I think it was around oh five. Yeah, it was sixty eight feet in the afternoon. It won the Billabong XXL event with Brad Gerlach. It was just massive. So that was the pinnacle of being there. Mm-hmm. I haven't been there in a few years now, and I'm probably done with it just because I'm not doing that type of work anymore. It's just I'm doing other stuff to make a living. 
the, the money's kind of gone out of making a living at it. I still mm. love it, but it is expensive. So you can't, sure. you can't be running around losing money like that all the time because, no, you know, half the time you don't get a very good. It's rare that you get something like we got yesterday. That was incredible. Absolutely. It yeah, was. it's a hard, hard call to make. And luckily, I didn't have to. I used to have to, and now I don't have to. I get called to go, so I'm not a wave forecaster, but I, I know about boating. That's good. It's very helpful. For sure. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting, too, because you were out there during some of the seminal sessions at the big wave spots on the West Coast, whether it was Toto Santos or Mavericks or, of course, Cortez. I, I'd be interested to, to hear how, how your sort of boating career and your photography career sort of evolved from those first missions to TOTUS and what was sort of motivating you, you know what I mean? The love of boating. I mean, that's absolutely number one. I love taking pictures off my boat. I, boating's fun and we could like have a zoo and tube and do all kinds of stuff. And I love that too. Family yeah. got to be raised behind some amazing boats ripping around like Havasu. That's and awesome. Was, you know, big giant Red Bull jet ski in the back of my Twin V and it just looked crazy. <laughs> Opposite of everything out there. So it was fun. I got a lot of attention. But um, I basically just kept working my way up and there was so many advances in the electronics and stuff right then one time the first time i did cortez bank was 2001 mm-hmm. i guess it was january 2001 that's right and i left a couple days later to hawaii but i came back and i went to the miami boat show and showed the photographs to the guy from guys from raytheon who had just bought in the company and now it's ray marine mm-hmm. they loaded me up with all the new color stuff i've got sponsored by them in a product way and it was everything i'll send you a gps you had differential gps so the advances and they needed advertising so we did trades for photography stories on myself for boating magazine for power motor yacht for mm-hmm. all these companies and then i did a lot of work for speed on the water who are the guys that used to work for powerboat who i used to work for a ton mm-hmm. covering for tom newby the staff photographer and then becoming essentially their staff photographer after tom died in a helicopter crash shooting in florida oh wow so there was um, lots of things going on, but there was lots of advances in the boats and the electronics. We'll talk about talk a little bit about what. So when you were taking a skiff out, a you know, Hobie skiff out at Totos to uh, you know your first runs out to to Cortez Bank. Like the first time, you know, maybe, well, let's, let's not back to, up. Not to, didn't take that skiff to Cortez. Yeah, yeah. no. We're, we're talking eight miles by water at Totas. I just mean in terms of what you, what you had electronics wise, because yeah, I remember you saying you had, you had a depth finder on your boat the first time you went to Cortez Bank, but you didn't even, but it wasn't even working, right? Yes, so you, correct, were, yeah. you were kind of flying blind above a seamount 100 Yeah, the hard one with that one was, that was a WorldCat 24 center console and it had twin engines, thank God. What did it have? Motors? Uh, 150s, I think, four okay. strokes. No, those were, it's 2001, so two strokes? Yeah, it would sure. be, I think. So anyways... We had to go to Catalina, pre-fuel, spend a couple hours in bed there, and then leave from Catalina around because they couldn't carry enough fuel mm. to do it. And so we went out in the middle of the night. But the problem was I had a small tower on that on my T-top, but I didn't have a driving station on it. On the top. So I pretty much couldn't go up there. So here's my first time at Cortez Bank, 105 miles out. It was beautiful out, but I was low. I was shooting from 
bottom level <laughs> in a small catamaran and almost died because I didn't see, you couldn't see much that low. And the humps of the size of side waves there are higher than your faces. So just seeing anything coming is really difficult. Mm-hmm. And then to come over a little hump and see maybe a 70-foot wave right in front of me has, has put the fear of God in me since. <laughs> Never, it happened one other time, maybe seven years later by accident. But, you know, I was quick. Thank God I was hit on my toes and threw it in gear and drove up the thing and dropped down the back and drove down the back out of there. I knew what to do instinctively, but terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. Well, you know, it's 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 interesting, too, because you and I have talked about some of the big wave surfers that you've covered and their sort of level of dedication, not only dedication, but kind of craziness. I remember you telling me one time that you thought Mike Parsons in particular, who for our listeners, Mike Parsons has set two world records at the Cortez Bank. And you you one time told me that you seriously thought that he was maybe losing his mind because he was such an addict. Yeah. for for big waves, right? Yeah, yeah, they were they were into it beyond belief. So when he caught the f- the first giant wave at Cortez on the inside in this what we call Larry's Bowl area, it was on the cover of Surfing Magazine. I think it was was a, that your photo? Yeah. Okay. I think it was a Guinness Book record. At it the was. Time. Yeah. Yeah. And when he caught it, I had been photographing since he's twelve years old. His dad was very helpful getting him through all the NSSA and all the lower surf ranks, kind of like Greg Long did later. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I, I, that day at Cortez, I'd already gone up and over that giant wave. He caught the wave early in the day, 9 a.m. or so. Perfect, sunny, beautiful. The By far the biggest thing we'd ever seen in our lives. He almost rode the his board to the side of my boat. And I remember telling him, saying, that's it, let's go. I said, I want to leave. <laughs> and it wasn't just me and there was other people. So I couldn't leave. But I just said, that's it. You know, you've done it. That's the pinnacle of your career right there. Don't push it. I mean, I don't want you to die. I don't want to take your body home. God, oh, it was unbelievable what we witnessed and got just a killer sequence of it. It was still slide film then. I just didn't think you could surf anything bigger. They didn't have the vests that you can pull. The air, the the, inflatables. Yeah, safety vests. They didn't have anything. You could call the Coast Guard on the radio VHF, maybe, if they could hear you at San Clemente Island. So where the naval base is there. So you're way out there. And there wasn't, I didn't have a satellite phone at the time. I got one later. But if someone got hurt, something happened, I'm not sure there was any way to get them out of there. So I just felt like, hey, that's it. You did it. Good, good, good. I'm proud of you, but I'm terrified. I want to move away. (laughs) It was scary. You definitely have a fear and respect for big ways, but probably have a bit of Mike Parsons in you as well. You know what I'm saying? In in terms of that that risk-taking nature. In the hunger to achieve, I don't see it as risk-taking because every time somebody sees these big waves and they ask, you're crazy. What'd you do? How'd you do it? Whatever. Because the angle's always deceiving. With a longer lens, you know, it looks mm. like you're going to get mowed down after the wave. And just And I tell people every time, I said, these places are the places that the biggest amount of water breaks in a, in a rideable fashion in the world. 
And it's all about the deep water and how it pushes up on these big, long interval swells and how it goes into underwater canyons and pressurizes and comes up. So all that stuff has to happen in a spot that's like at an angle. Mm-hmm. So there's deep water next to shallow water. Mm. And that deep water is where you're parked, like we did yesterday. We were in 160 feet of water at times. And in a minute, you could be in 60 feet of water where it could break. So it's it's just about these places, you know, as they were found, the bottom of <laughs> you finally have these big, giant waves that break in a perfect shape. And they are perfect. They are. It's not like they're ripping across the ocean and the guy surfs it for a mile across or anything. They're pretty quick rides, but they're perfect shaped. And so you're, it's kind of a deception game. You really are not risking your life. When you do it right, you're sitting. When you do it right. Yes, yes. I twice I almost didn't do it right. (laughs) (laughs) But you also, you also have to have, right, a certain. You got to know surfing. You know, you've got to have done it in your life and understand the sport. Like guys who shoot hockey, you know, or basketball, you got to know what's happening. I mean, that isn't quite the same thing as the big wave stuff, obviously, you know, but you have to know what the hell's going on. And you have to, uh, you know, Steve said that he thinks that in terms of the photos that you've taken, because you have, if I'm not mistaken, you've had two photos. I think you're the only photographer that's had two photos recognized as as world records for your shots, right? Is for it two Guinness or three? Book, Guinness Book Records. Yeah. I think two. I think two. Did you, did you get Sean Dollars at Cortez? Yeah, Bank but Locker? I didn't win that. Okay. I didn't win, and my angle is from the side. Gotcha. So, but you were there too. Oh yeah. Happened. Oh yeah. I you shot know. it. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, Steve said that at a place like Cortez, particularly Cortez, but also you know some of these other spots where, like you said, the water is deep right off the side so you can be relatively safe yeah. but you have to know how to read waves it helps or it helps a lot to have been a surfer oh, yeah. understand how that wave is going to behave when it comes over shallow water so you don't end up you know being part of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. it's 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 a it's like a little dance you know it's a fine dance and yesterday was the first time i've ever been out to cortez where i wasn't driving the whole time so I didn't have to drive all night. I didn't have to drive all day. I was higher than I've ever been on the boat mm-hmm. on top of a big sport fisher, which was pleasant because you get these big humps in front of the front, the first wave or a corner. It's a very angular kind of situation with mm-hmm. stuff going all over the place. And so it was the most successful day I've ever had there as far as picking up, being able to get the rides while they're towing into them and going to do their bottom turns. I saw more than I've ever seen. Well, that's different too. And and I think, you know, one thing for our listeners and readers to, to understand too, is when you've made these missions to shoot big waves in the past, You've not only been driving the boat, you've been shooting the photos while driving the boat. So maybe talk a little bit about the challenges of multitasking like yeah. that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Well, basically, it was almost always from upstairs because every boat after the World Cat had driving stations on them upstairs, which is critical for these bigger places. Mavericks, not so much. Totos, not so much. But Cortez, it's critical. This different animal out there, bigger, bigger, bigger. So you're sitting. So you're sitting on the top of a of a rig above the the center console, piloting the boat in seas that are thirty plus feet, yeah. swaying from side to side while while yeah. driving the boat while while trying. Well, to there was it. a there was a big push for power catamarans with flame. Mm-hmm. 
when he was, he was, he always loved boats too. He had a big sailboat. Then he had a hard bottom inflatable for a while. And I was a boat fiend. I mean, I still am. I just, we go to Florida and look around and I just drool. I don't have the budget to buy these Freemans and big boats. And, and the, the Twin V36 pilot house that I bought, I did a test drive in San Diego on one. I didn't even know they made them. And hmm. I saw one. I did a test drive and I ordered it. I really? Said, Done. Because we were really hitting Cortez. That was my life right then. What year did you get the, did you get the Twin V? So let's talk about, you know, when you got the Twin V, what you needed from a boat at that point, and then talk to me about your own obsession with Cortez. Yeah, so those two yeah. things. And how yeah, what, yeah. Well, I had a Pro Sports 24 or Wolcat 24 and a half, Pro Sports 26 uh, that I could put a jet ski up in the back of. Mm. I made a ramp system out of aluminum material. I had mm-hmm. it welded up with a winch. And then I, in 2006, I bought the uh, Twin V36 Pilot House. And it was from the test drive. It drove right through boat wakes and stuff. And I just need something fast, stable, because we were going to do some strike missions. We need to be out there in three hours, 105 miles out. And talk about the conditions that you'd be driving the boat through to get there. Well, mostly they're beautiful at night, slow stuff, you know, with radar and all that. And I had flare for a while. But it was the one in 08 was the one was the most challenging where we went out in a huge storm and really... I told the surfers, I basically made them a deal that they would pay getting just to San Camino Island. If we got that far, it was this amount just to cover fuel and this and that. And if we went the whole way, they'd pay this amount. We had a gold contract Mm -hmm. because I never thought we were in three hours. We're going to do it. Really? Oh, yeah. I just thought we're going to waste a bunch of money. We're going to get about halfway to San Camino Island, have to turn around, which you almost did. It almost happened that way. It was so rough. So how big were the seas inside of the Channel Islands and what were you having to do to navigate the boat? Well, that we left Dana Point Harbor at 7 a.m. and we were airborne the second we went outside. Mm. So we were towing. We had one ski inside. We were towing one and that wasn't going to work at all. So Greg Long got on that ski. It was blasting. It was blowing 20 plus south Jeez. wind straight into the harbor. Uh-huh. But the guys had done their research and they knew it was supposed to lay down. We were working directly with Sean Collins. The, and who Sean surfing, yeah. Yeah, yeah t- started surfing. And he, we had been in a lot of connections during those years, flying helicopters together in Hawaii, doing all kinds of stuff together. And the first time ever, me being involved in someone who knew how to forecast. And uh, being able to call these shots, you couldn't just couldn't do it. You couldn't just go out there. You had to coincide with the beginning part of a giant ground swell from the North Aleutians or North Pacific, whatever. Mm-hmm. So this one, he didn't go with us. Sean Collins did not go with us because he said, don't go. Too dangerous. He told, he told Mike Parsons, Greg, well, all the guys said, don't go. And I was on a retainer with Surfline at the time. So I was getting some money to work with them. And he said don't go we mike and those guys talked to him numerous times every time he kept looking said don't go don't go it's too dangerous don't go it's too stormy blah 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 it's going to be giant but don't go and <laughs> so we all took that as he doesn't want to go we shouldn't go but they want to go so we're going so he didn't tell him when we left and he came, i came back to some very obscene phone calls and and some hate because he thought we snuck out on him or something. He said, don't go. And it was just miscommunication because he didn't want to, you know, whatever. But he loved to videotape and film and be around it. Mm-hmm. So he was pretty furious that he wasn't involved. 
But uh, so we all took it as he didn't want to go. So we're going anyway. Yeah. So anyways, we get halfway out to probably 20, 25 miles out to uh, San Camilo Island toward halfway there, quarter of the way to Cortez Bank. And it starts to mellow. The, the, it starts to lay down a south wind. We can tell. So we're talking to each other. We've been airborne for an hour. Jeez. Discussing stopping because I thought it was going to split the boat in half. We were airborne and landing and the Twin V was amazing. It just. So yeah. was it, you, you get, oh, would you yeah. get so airborne that the motors would go, Wah! Well, you know, I let them off, so I didn't blow them up. But yes, Jeez. yes, we were airborne. Wow. I'd try to drive it to a point where we could blast through stuff and not slam too hard, but we missed a few times. And so, but what happened is you could tell, you know, suddenly when it's that violent, all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a minute, we're not as airborne. And sure enough, as we kept, and it was raining then too. So as we're the next 25 miles to San Clemente Island, it's, it's really laid down. It's visibly different. Giant groundswell, but not oh, this yeah. crazy wind oh, yeah. chop. That was well, we were still in the lee of San Camino Island, so we're going to go around the south end of it and then do the turn pretty much a little bit north, I think it is, just barely, but you still kind of curve around the bottom of San Camino Island and just keep going. Mm -hmm. Now you're halfway there when you're next to the rocks at San Camino Island. So by then, it's laid down to the point where it's just lot, like giant rolling mess, but it's smooth now. I really want to get some photos of it. We had no time. We were on an absolute timeline to be there at noon for the peak of the swell to mm -hmm. make it work. Because we're going to go out, photograph it, to haul ass back as quick because as Because there was another storm coming. We were right, right in between two massive storms. And it's basically now we're going by the edge of San Camino Island. You can see the groundswell starting. That's the time when you're in open ocean now to where you're going to see action. And just massive you could tell the deep water stuff was there, but it's really rolling. So you're not getting here on that stuff. It's 20 seconds apart. So it's like a roller coaster ride kind of. So the so, swells are literally like a oh, block wide, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of so you can just drive. And it laid down to the point. There was a couple of squalls. It basically looked like Florida in the summer. Wow. Yeah. Almost tor mini tornadoes here and there in squalls. Jeez. And it was really just. God's work at best. It was beautiful. So pretty to watch it. And this is cold weather stuff, mm -hmm. not, not the Florida death. <laughs> right. not the, anyways, East Coast heat and humidity. But we're going through this stuff. And it looks like thunder cells all over the place. But now we're basically out of the bank turning. And now we could do a straight run. So and we're how fast were you able 45. To? Really? Yeah. 45 knots. Miles an hour. Jeez. We, cool. lit, we lit it up. We're 600 horsepower. We had to go. And the jet ski is still following you. Yeah, that fast too. The we fueled it up at San Kamei Island on the corner, not on land, but just mm -hmm. out in the water, threw fuel in it real quick. And he said, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to stay on it. Damn. It's just an Iron Man. So we continue on, get out to Cortez Bank. And Cortez Bank the, is massive, but when you're coming in to go around the point there, to come into the kind of the spot where it breaks, you have to kind of go around the bottom of the bank and come in. Describe so, how big the bank is, because, I mean, a lot of people don't understand. I mean, this was, we're talking basically an island that sunk. Yeah. It's the size of what, Catalina? Pretty big. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know more, you've done more research than me, but it's a massive underwater rock canyon and just an island mm -hmm. that comes up to what, three feet, eight feet? Yeah. So, so, so between that, feet. I mean, the troughs of waves, I yeah. think you can occasionally even see rock. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, way. yeah. We think we've seen it. So mm -hmm. 
But the difference even from yesterday was the fact that the edge of the bank, when you're coming into it, so I'm upstairs, I see this kind of almost rapids like going in open water. We're coming up to the bank to, to enter by the buoy mm-hmm. to go into the to the east side of it, come inside. Because you got to kind of sneak in a little area to, to, to make it work, to get to where the waves are good. And I yelled down to the deathly ill video guy who's now throwing up. And I've, I had him tie himself in downstairs. I said, if we're going to do this, you know, you've got to lay down in there and tie yourself in because I can't. I can't keep an eye on you and you can't die on me. <laughs> you can throw up, but you can't die. Right. So I said, just hang on. And I had to drive through rapids that I've never seen pouring off the side of the reef. It was just like uh, just going up rapids, you yeah. know, broiling water and then rushing big, off the reef. And then how big are the waves in on the outside that you're looking at? They were 78 feet that day is what they measured. Mm-hmm. I think they were a little small for what I think it was bigger than that. <laughs> so. We crawl in there, and I know better by now than to go up that wave. <laughs> so bottom line is we go in there, we start shooting, and all of a sudden the sun starts to come out. We're in between two rainstorms. It went perfectly flat. And, this, and Sean did forecast this part of it. He mm-hmm. just wasn't so positive about being able to get out there. He knew it was going to be a lull between the two storms. And Mike Parsons and Greg knew the size of the waves that were supposed to be there, and they had they had to go. They were foaming at the mouth. They said, we have to go look, just like they said in some interviews. We have to see what this looks like. So, Because this was, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, up until this past storm that happened a few weeks ago here on the West Coast, I mean, those, these were some of the biggest buoy readings in the last 30 years. That, oh, that you oh yeah. For this 2008 storm, right? Yeah, yeah. They were seeing stuff that excited them a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming down the coast. So we, we, all in all, it was amazing. It went how they wanted it to go. I wanted it to go that way. I had my doubts. Sean absolutely had his doubts. But it went how they hoped. And it went exactly how Sean forecast it would happen. It would lay down for three, four hours, be maybe surfable. And then you got to get out of there. Open water, uh, just radical winds. And so we did this. Mike, it's sun comes out. He rides this 78 foot wave. What did you think when you saw him coming down that wave? I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in your mind as you're both trying to not get swamped, operate your camera, drive the boat. You've got this videographer down there who's definitely seasick. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm just, I kept wondering. the one, I remember the one thing I kept thinking is go, this poor videographer is missing history. He's going to be miserable for the rest of his life because it's the biggest waves ever ridden on earth ever in history. And he's really into it. He's a great videographer, Mm -hmm. but he just got taken out from the second we left. You know, he got the seasick thing and really the poor guy thought he was going to die on me. So, and I couldn't turn around. I wanted to go drop him off, but I couldn't, you know, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So I felt bad for him and I knew it was a historical thing and I knew it was going to be painful. So I said, okay, shoot all you can to cover for him. And he did get some shots too, you know. Not really. I mean, he got, but yeah, nothing that was usable, but he did. Yeah. yeah, Some blurry. We've seen the video. Uh, There there are some crazy ways to (laughs) capture. But then, so what did you think when you saw Mike coming down that way? Well, I thought, don't miss it. It was really far up the reef and basically, luckily, I've got good equipment and knew where to shoot. I almost didn't get him because mm. he was behind the wave and all of a sudden he started coming down. When they're dropping in on these waves, sometimes it starts up and it's not so steep. 
So they start, they tow in, they're coming down, coming down, and it grows. And that's when, just like yesterday, you start seeing how big it's really going to be because mm-hmm. it can get in the wave so early. He actually went down the wave and started shooting, and he started going backwards. Up the wave. Yeah. Because, because it was he, so fast. Yeah. He his fins were cavitating. He started to go up into the whitewater a little bit. And I took a few more frames to where you almost couldn't see him. You could just see an arm sticking out of the yeah. whitewater. Oh, yeah, it was terrifying. And then he showed up and came out and kicked out. And so I, I was ultra close to not getting the photographs because of where he was at. And if I'm not mistaken, Greg Long did ride a wave that all the surfers said was even bigger than yeah, the world yeah. record wave he photoed, but yeah. you weren't able to get that if because I had, it was obscured if, by another wave. Yeah, right? if I had, could have been on the boat we were on yesterday, I might have gotten Greg's waves. I have tracks of him going down, and he's blocked. So I didn't even know he rode a bigger wave, but they all said, yeah, where's Greg's shot? And it's like, it ain't in here, guys. He disappeared behind the, the giant hump in front of him. God, so crazy. So it's disappointing because you can't do everything. You try, you try. Exactly. And it's just one of those things where you you do all you can, but I'm happy I got what I got. It was really exciting. I won the Billabong XXL Big Wave Award that year. And it was cool because they did T-shirts of the shot and it was all the advertising for the event. What is it about Cortez in your mind that makes it so special? You know, I mean, uh, there are obvious things, but I'm wondering just from your own mental perspective. Well, just being a big wave fiend, knowing that I can't surf it. it, You know, surfers are competitive. They want to get FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out. I feel the same way. I still panic when Totos is big and I'm not there. Really? Yeah, because it's it's, uh, got a deep spot in my heart. Mexico is an amazing place. And especially when they built the Hotel Corral down there, you could go to a world-class marina. I mean, we used to launch my boat off the rocks and in the in the little parking lot, like yeah. I said. So it became very deluxe and very nice when the Hotel Corral was built. And now it's a long time ago, but that was a big deal to have a launch ramp. Mm-hmm. And the one in Jeez. Ensenada Harbor was such a joke. <laughs> I talked about chaos getting a boat backed into it. It was impossible, really. So it wasn't like your boat ramp at any place. So... It's just Toto's really special, but I, yeah, I don't like missing out. I'm not a full-time photographer any longer because just uh, the money's not there anymore. So you got to be more consistent with other stuff. I don't have the same passion for losing as much as I did then, you know, but um, I had the same passion yesterday. It was unbelievable. It's, It's one of the seven wonders of the world for sure. It's as big of a wonder as anything on earth. I think so too. Yeah. And there is no, to me, there's no dang, more dangerous sport on earth. Talk and, about that. Talk about well, why you think it's so, uh, why you think big wave surfing. I just, I watched the Jimmy Chin show on um, climbing El Capitan free, free solo. Mm-hmm. Scared the hell out of me. I'm afraid of heights. And <clears throat> that story was amazing. That show was beautiful. And maybe that's what I consider big wave riding to be like. You had also compared, right. I remember talking about Formula One one time, the same. Well, Formula One's much safer than this. There's no question. Hmm. I know the speeds. I've been around it. I've been Indy 500 a bunch of times, worked on teams even in the pits. Hmm. Yeah. So they're going for it. It's speed like nothing else. Indy cars and Formula One, it's, it's unbelievable, but still it's safer than this. Because you're encased, you've got a fight and chance. There's people there to help you. Mm-hmm. This is like a Formula One wreck 
to start <laughs> and not being in no you, car. Right? <laughs> yeah. So you can either drown, get hit by the board, get knocked out, hit the bottom several times, do all of it, light on fire underwater, maybe even. Feels mm-hmm. like it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's that dangerous. For sure. It's just terrifying. So they're, they're athletes, they're fit. But anybody who's ever surfed a three foot wave and has their arm whipped around their neck and their head put between their feet and you know you just get killed and to think what it must be like for something like this to do it it's like a bus crash with no bus that's exactly that's a great way to describe it for sure and it doesn't stop (laughs) it's horror i mean the the mental state it must take to hold your breath that long is incredible and relax and become part of the water you pretty much have to check out of life for one to two minutes, pretend it isn't happening and just go, just go calm, but be aware. Oh no, it's terrifying. It's interesting too, because I mean, you know, yes, you were shooting boat racing. You were shoot, you were, you were doing work for other boat companies as well. And you were, and, and like you said, you were working in the pits on races and stuff like that. So you saw a lot of sort of thrill seeking behavior you are around it you're you're arguably one yourself i mean i think well let's when i was at andy the irl had just started and i pitted for roberto guerrero i was the i did two years in a row two different drivers but i did the the lollipop and pulled the front gun back for irl and split with indycar and they needed people and i said i'm going it's a once a lifetime chance I'm going to do what you guys need and be in the pits at Indy during Indy 500. And the guy, the team next to us was the guy who got hit by the back wheel of the car coming in and he hit his head so hard on the concrete, he almost bled out. He was the guy, it was right next to us. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievable to witness. He was the inspiration for the helmets in NASCAR and IndyCar. Really? For the pit crews. Uh-huh. They weren't wearing them before then. And after that day, it was mandated. Damn. Yeah, it was unbelievable to watch that. I'd still rather be him than in one of these. I, I know I could survive. I think I could survive that. I know I could not sur- survive one of these ways. And I you, know it. You told me one time. At, I would at- kill myself. I'd just say, get a knife. I'm stabbing myself to get this over with. (laughs) Rather than take this way. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Or have a heart attack just seeing it. (laughs) You had almost sort of a symbiotic relationship with these, with these big wave surfers at, at during sort of that early growth growth that when the, the explosive early growth, because if it, you were the guy that. Well, I had a boat. You loved me. (laughs) Well, you had a boat, but you were also as obsessed if I'm not mistaken, right? Pretty I mean, close, you were as, pretty close. Yeah. You had to be, because I mean, you had to be, I, I would argue that you had to be as obsessed with getting the shot and with boats as they were with, with surfing these big waves, because who else was going to go out? You know, you, you were the guy. I mean, who else was yeah. going to go out in yeah. some of these conditions, right? I took great pride in that too. I really was excited about being part of that group especially when Sean Collins started helping us out. That was, it was just stupid, the difference of knowing when a swell was coming instead of, you know, it was impossible basically before. We didn't even know how waves were created when we first started. When I first started going to Hawaii, they were still thinking if there was earthquakes every day or they didn't know the Aleutians, they didn't have the satellites yet. Right. I'm pretty old now. <laughs> so that kind of stuff wasn't there yet. And 
I mean, for a kid now to think of having a cell phone that has more computer energy than NASA had, you know, mm -hmm. those kind of things, it's, it's hard for them to probably look back and go, what? You couldn't look at a camera of so-and-so? Well, yeah. Yeah. And it didn't exist. It was So it was fun being part of that new time, but... Uh, it was a pain in the ass. It wasn't fun. It wasn't fun guessing that much. I found it fascinating that that there was this guy, Rob Brown, who let's make let's let's be honest, you weren't making a killing. No. You know, and I mean you there was a couple select moments. So I one day at Mavericks I paid off my wife's car. Really? Yeah, that really? was the photographs from one day at Mavericks. Twenty five thousand dollars I made that day. Wow. And yeah. we're looking, by the way, at a photo of Rob with surfer Shane Desmond um, at Mavericks on a wave that, what, that's 60 feet, Rob? Probably, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's absolutely massive. That's crazy. Yeah. So, that, so that's was, the outside reef at Mavericks up by San Francisco. So did that add, though, how did that, how did that add or detract from the experience? I mean, because not only were you obsessed with this, this is how you're making a living. And so it had to be nerve wracking as hell in some instances to be doing this and hoping, praying that you got the shot so that well, you could yeah, pay your and, and pay for your lifestyle. Exactly. Right? Is, well, I was, doing a, I was doing a lot of photography at General Motors. And mm. that's the thing. I told you I like to photograph everything sport-related. Yeah. And so no weddings. <laughs> I did a few, but that just – I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Just not I, – I, I had this chip on my shoulder that that wasn't photography. Hmm. The traditional studio photographer who shoots flowers and products all the time. I did, I did like that, and I challenged myself to try to do it. But portrait photography and weddings just didn't feel like photography to me. I don't know why. I just didn't like it. Wasn't well, is it me. also just because you're... Adventure-based. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're... Adventure challenged. Yeah, adventure <laughs> challenged. I like that. I like that a lot. That's a good way to put it. And, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think it's arguable that, that, you know, you're, you're cut from the same cloth, even if you're, if, if even if the fiberglass cloth went into, to boats instead of surfboards. Yeah, exactly. You know? As, yeah. I've always loved boating. I love it. It's fun. You know, and I've, we have Lake Havasu six hours away. My kids grew up there. I grew up awesome. there before that. Every time I go, I take a boat. And I've never owned go-fast boats. I just love the look of, of more fishing boats, T-tops. That's my style, ocean-style mm -hmm. boats. It's, mm -hmm. I was photographing $2 million boats, and I just had no interest in it. I loved the layout. Hmm. I loved the way they – What I, I don't know if I was jealous of how rich these people were. I just couldn't relate because these are boats that are so expensive that it's just stupid. The amount of money they're putting into them and the expense – and the speed is just, it's not for me. I'm just not a speed addict like mm -hmm. that. You're, you're a form and function addict. Exactly. Way, right? I'm kind of a gearhead who, who wants to stay alive. I just think, whatever. I don't mean to knock it. I just couldn't relate. That's all. You know, these race boats, I, I would go photograph it in beautiful helicopters. And all the money that was around it, I couldn't relate to it. I just wasn't rich, so I couldn't figure it out. It's how these people get this much dough to spend $2 million on a boat that goes 900 miles an hour and <laughs> makes so much noise. So I had to kind of keep my chip on my shoulder quiet because I didn't want to lose the work I had for Powerboat. I was really um, in awe that I got to work for them and mm, get to shoot race awesome. boats and, and be around boating in that fashion, but it wasn't for me. That's all. I just, just wasn't my style. I would... 
you know, see all the flames on the boats and stuff and think, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. But I'd look at a straight white gel coated Parker or whatever. And go, yeah, ooh, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk about you know, one thing we talked about the, the cats, the, the power cats that you've that you've had. Um, what are sort of the parameters that you that you need that you have needed or that you're looking for in a boat? to to get you safely to a place like Cortez Bank, what does that boat need to be able to do? Handle chop really well. Like that, the Twin V36 is 11 foot 10 wide. Mm. I would tow that through Los Angeles up to Mavericks. Really? 15 times at least I did that. Damn. Blew a tire every time. Had old tires on. On the trailer but, or on the On the on trailer. The okay. Yeah. yeah. Just, just couldn't afford new tires for it, but I was still going to Mavericks. I was taking it up there to work on the movie up there for... Um, Chasing Mavericks. Oh yeah, Every, you worked everything. At, you worked on Chasing Mavericks. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me some other like. And also, visit. I was the only press boat that was allowed on the race course for the America's Cup in San Francisco. Right on. Seven weeks up there, I worked on that with the Twin V. Yeah, brand new three hundreds on it was amazing. Verados. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha, Verados. But um, the boat had to eat up chop. It had to be stable. And the Twin V, to me, that boat was just the ultimate. It really was because I had a tippy boat, steer, you know, kind of cavitating boats, kind of boats that trim sensitive, mm-hmm. boats that steer themselves too much. Like catamarans have notorious downwind spin outs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Twin V didn't do any of that stuff. I had it in some of the heaviest stuff I've ever seen, especially up by Mavericks doing the movie. The heaviest stuff I think anybody's ever, t- you know, taken a powerboat out in. Oh, yeah. That's, you know? Yeah. I mean, but, seriously. Yeah, up by Mavericks one evening working on the movie while giant swell was coming in at night, coming back in, just getting dark. And Jeff Clark of Mavericks said that's what I explained to him. He said is some of the most heavy water they see right in that area. And it's it's rough water up there. Coming it's, around into the Half Moon Bay come, Harbor when you're No, coming. you're more coming around Mavericks on the outside okay. there from being north of there. Mm-hmm. And then... Just what goes on with all the refraction and the giant swell. I had to bring it. I basically got his son in the dinghy that was running support for us, pulled the boat up in, and I dipped the bow a couple times on my boat trying in the south wind, trying to Damn. get through there. You, you know? dipped the bow, the bow on the oh. twin V? Oh, yeah. Jeez. I filled the boat twice, and Holy I said, this is how people die out here. I got to slow down, just drive it safe, and get in. And we did, but that scared the hell out of me. That was scary. Yeah. I can dig it. Yeah. Describe maybe the difference in, you know, say you had a, a comparable size center console V-hull versus the, the twin V, you know, for, for getting out the Cortez, what would be the difference in the ride and, the, and, or could you even do it? You know what I mean? Yeah, you could do it. If it was a day like yesterday, of course, but mm-hmm. how many times you're going to get flat water from here out to there and back? Exactly. I mean, we had butter. We we were driving on glass and ball bearings out there yesterday. And back. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely. Rid- just as just ridiculous. So it was a dream come true yesterday. And uh, you'd need something maybe forty foot. You know, a big giant sport fisher with an upper station. You know, mandatory um, something like that. Twin twin or triple engine. Something that carries enough gas to really go fast and do it during daylight. But with the Twin V, you could do that with a much smaller boat yeah. that would let you, and and you knew you'd be able to get out to to, to Cortez in short order. Yeah, it carried enough to. fuel. It was stable enough. It was a big, flat platform. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a challenge to drive at all. 
So it wasn't exciting to drive either, but it was faithful. That's Every, everything you did, you could count on rotating, putting it out there. You know, there's a technique I use where basically I showed the captain yesterday. We had had a safety meeting earlier in the day and I told him what to do mm-hmm. and where not to be. And he listened fully, but there's, you basically have to just put the bow into the waves coming at you, keep an eye on it and recorrect a lot, back up a little bit, go forward, sometimes do a loop because between the wind and the current pushing you into the bank where the waves are, it's deceiving so we were triangulating hmm. off a buoy in a lobster trap all day. And that's everything. That buoy is our, that lobster buoy was our lifeline. Yeah, it was. Showed it, you it really was. in a big open area of what's going on. So, yeah, it's crazy. What are some of the things that you've learned that you would pass along to another boater who wanted to, who either wanted to go and do some of what you've done in big swells and, and at the edge of big waves? but also who might find themselves inadvertently in a situation involving big swells, big wind chop and heavy waves. You know, are there some pieces of advice that you would? Well, first off, if you're not there intentionally for the waves, get the hell out of there and leave. Mm. (laughs) Go somewhere far, Mm -hmm. (laughs) quick. (laughs) Go to the deepest water you can find and get the hell out of there. (laughs) And if it's not what you're there for, then exit. If you're there for it, do a massive amount of homework before you go out there. Mm-hmm. Anybody could do it, but learn about surfing, learn about what you're looking at, learn about what you're trying to achieve. I don't know. It's just you, you, I wouldn't advise it to anyone unless they were really into it. If they wanted to photograph big waves and have someone, especially Cortez Bank, Mavericks is, is under much more control. It's a perfect wave. In like Toto Santos, it's just, it's different because they break in the same place all the time like Pipeline does Mm -hmm. and Jaws does. But Cortez has many breaks to it. And then there's a mystery break that just comes in for fun out of nowhere from a different direction. At Cortez. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's just not something to play with at all. So call me. If you want to go there and get my advice in, because I've seen it, I've seen it 100 feet. I've taken a picture of it 100 feet. I know it was 100 feet because I had something to compare it to from earlier in the mm-hmm. day. And I think it could get yesterday didn't quite get as big as I thought it was going to get. So I've seen the buoys much bigger. Even last week was bigger, but it was windy and stormy. How big do you think it was last week during the height of that it, storm? It definitely was over 100 feet. Wow. Yeah, because wow. the buoys were... Four to five foot bigger, same interval, but it was windy and choppy. Mm-hmm. So it had a massive amount more deep water swell to it. So the swells are a thousand feet deep. They're rolling across the ocean every 20 seconds. That roll's going on. And that roll and that deep water, that thousand foot is what makes it jump up towards the sky when it hits shallow areas. So that deep water stuff, you know, Sean Collins would draw it out for me. It was almost like rolling ball bearings. Yeah. Giant ball bearings that go deeper than you would ever imagine. You would think it's just the top. It's all the way down to the bottom. That's what, and that's what, that was a fascinating thing Sean taught me too. I had no idea that swells ran. That's, I'm glad you pointed that out because that's something I just was not aware of. I wasn't either. The longer the period, the bigger the roll and the deeper and the deeper that wave goes in the ocean. And that's why a place like Cortez Bank gets so big. But that's oh, it rolls a thousand miles, 1500 miles across the ocean. That's the first thing it runs into at full speed. So the surfers say it's the fastest wave in the world for that 
you know, for big waves, it's faster than any other wave. Mm-hmm. There's no continental shelf. It just comes and hits a, a mountain underwater. Crazy. And so it just goes ejecting into the sky, up, 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 at full speed. <laughs> I'm wondering what your... The first time you went out there was the 2001 mission, yeah, right? When yeah. Mike got his first world record. What did you... What was going through your mind as you pulled up and saw that wave? <laughs> I got there early and it was dark and we're trying to find the other boat that was there with the surfer or the other surfers. And cause we had, <clears throat> cause you had Dana Brown's boat for the movie. Yeah, and I didn't know they were going to be out there. So that was a surprise to me. So that was a big sport fisher, but then there was a Pacific quest that mm-hmm. went out of San Diego with the, with the skis surfers and everyone. So I was hired to be part of the group as this project Neptune secret mission to the moon, as Pete Mel called it. Literally. And so I did my part, me and my insurance agent, who insured my boat, basically. He's just a fiend, wanted some action, so he jumped on and went with me. He's the only guy available at the time to just to go because he wanted to. So he and I went. We had our own. It was right after, let's see, it was 2001. So the what had happened is the year before was the 9-11. Mm-hmm. And the towers had gone down. So off San Clemente Island is a military base, and they were doing war games out there. They were getting ready to go to war. Damn. And they got on the radio and said, what the hell? They could see that I was t- – no, that time – there was different times, but that one was pretty hot out there. Oh, was, yeah, no, it wasn't – so well, that was 2001, so it wasn't – Didn't happen. Yeah, 9-11 was – 9-11 had not happened yeah. yet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But they were doing war games anyway. And so we were out there. But the, the military was on there calling to us, going, we see you on your radar. What are, we, what are you doing? I said, we're going out to Big Waves, Cortez Bank. And finally, I said, good luck. <laughs> you know, something like you that. on the radio. Yeah, yeah it, wasn't very, it wasn't very promising. Uh-huh. So the whole day changed once we – what happened was I got there, met the guys. Luckily, John um, Walla, who was driving that boat, had been out there before fishing. Mm-hmm. And at least knew the layout a little bit, so – I followed him in. They put the um, jet skis in the water. I got some great pictures. And then I went over and that wave came and I went up it and over it. My day changed from that second on from this is going to be epic. I'm going to be a hero to I want to leave. <laughs> I am just terrified. It it didn't go as planned that day. And I had the scariest moment I've ever had in my life. But you also had the first world record photograph. Well, no, this is this life. is when I drove over the way. Oh, before right. But I, I'm just saying, I'm contrasting. Later, it was all good. Yes, yeah. it was a high and a low. It was low and a high. The low was, oh, seriously, almost dying. Because it was the close, closest call I'd ever had in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Anywhere, ever. <laughs> the adrenaline was shooting to the moon. I seriously drove out of there and looked around and called the airplane that showed up with the other guys. Had a walkie-talkie to him and said, "What the hell are you doing to me?" What? I was pissed. Like, <laughs> what? What did you send me out here for? It's like <laughs> that's the wave. That's the wave. They're in the wrong place. They're in the wrong place. So you were. So you were was where the, the surfers actually needed to be, almost capsizing your boat. Oh, capsized nothing. God. I went straight up a seventy-foot wave and. I seriously couldn't see the end of the lip. I went up, 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 dropped down and drove. The, you saw the picture of the back wave, how big mm-hmm. it is? Yeah. yeah. I drove down that back at an angle like this with it raining offshore. We got drowned. <sighs> Almost zero visibility. Came out in the open again. And there was another one coming. It was terrifying. 
Jeez Louise. And I, and I felt a little bit like a fool. It's like, you know, nobody did that to me on purpose, but I did know it was my own fault for not, I don't know. But you There's also just nothing to have to, to get bearings on out there. Right, exactly. That's a, that's an important point. So it became this. extremely important after that day to have a better feel for it. You know, really understand where I was. <laughs> it was wasn't about topography on the bottom. I never felt like I needed a depth sounder to know where I was. It was more about keeping an eye on it. And even though I did it one more time a few years later, it wasn't as bad as that mm-hmm. one. That was the closest call I ever had in my life. Damn. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> did what did you think about like the first time I ever saw Cortez? There's this sense of unreality. Like I don't know. I'm I'm wondering like to me it was like this does not look possible. Yeah. 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 What what what's your sort of you well, know, take it's, on, on it's the like place? slow motion. It's so big. It's fast motion, but slow motion. Especially when the guy's toe in and you're thinking that looks like it's going to get big, but I don't know. And then they start fading, you know, going back a little bit. and Towards the wave. And then it starts growing, you know, and you're going, okay, okay. And you start taking a picture, picture, picture. You go, you start thinking, you go, I'm not holding the motor drive down. I've taken 10 or 12 pictures and they're still not to the bottom of the wave. <laughs> I'm not blasting, you know, I'm not overshooting, but they're not even done. And it takes 10, 12, 15 pictures to take to get shots of them dropping in. Jeez, man. It takes a long T-saw yesterday. Mm-hmm. They go, go, go. And this is before they really start riding up the wave. You know, they're just getting to the bottom. Mm-hmm. God, it's big. It is. It's a, cra- it's a crazy place. Talk a little bit about one of your partners in crime on this, uh, Bill Sharp, who was, I guess he was executive sort of producing for HBO yesterday for, for their production. For, for those of you listening who, who aren't familiar, Bill's been out there to Cortez. He's one of the first guys to ever surf it that we know of, even though it was he went out on a really small day back in the 90s mm-hmm. with, with Flame and Sam George. Um, talk a little bit about sort of Bill's place and in, in, in all of this through the years. Bill's you know? a super entrepreneur, videographer, still guy, he does it all surf addict but you know he's making a living and he's obsessed by big waves he created the the k2 big wave challenge a long time ago and then all of the billabong xxl shows he produced those and big wave events in nazare and jaws and he's been involved forever and although the world surf league has kind of taken over that and he's in a little different realm it seems he's still got to work and he still wants to be where he started Mm -hmm. He deserves it. He, he deserves does. it as much as anybody because he's he's done more for big wave surfing than anybody else on earth, personally, as far as making it a mainstream sport. And he made this happen yesterday. Oh, basically. yeah, 100%. That was his baby. He called it four days ago, and no one's ever called it four days ago. It just doesn't work that way. It's almost a last-minute thing, and you're still panicking. And he just told me flat out, if you can go, you know, let's do an agreement, and you go. And we'll go on that you'll use the boat that we chartered last year to be prepared to go. We did a lot of work last year on interviews and arranging boats and arranging the big boat you went on mm-hmm. or you the other people went on with the jet skis. Did a lot of pre-work last year and then we never got it good. So it's always, it was, yeah, Cortez didn't that's another thing. Like Cortez is a rarity. Oh yeah. Some some years you don't get good enough conditions to go out there at all. Yeah, it seems like there's Usually one or two wait sessions that are probably big enough, but it's got to coincide 
it's its own ecosystem out there and its own weather pattern. Mm-hmm. It's that far off the coast. So he knew this one he called the other day and said, nothing's changing. It's green lit. Everything I want it to be, it's being. Wow. And it was. He was absolutely spot on. So he, he must have been. He's I, I would imagine you were relieved as well, but I can imagine, Bill, I mean, this must have been a $100,000 production oh, yeah. to get all of this yeah. happening. Yesterday. Yeah, and people flying from Nazareth ports from Europe, from Hawaii. You know, luckily I had to go one mile to the harbor. So normally it's never it's never been that way for me. So this right. was a treat. And I try not, especially when I'm just a hired gun to shoot pictures and advise. I'd never done that before. I'd never not driven out there. So I had to kind of say, I'm going to do photography the best. I To reward Bill for hiring me, I'm going to kill it. I do go into that mindset where I just say, I'm going to, insanely focused on doing the job right. I mean, you stood up on the top of the flybridge of that boat strapped into a harness yesterday for eight hours. Yeah. Without going pee. Yeah, I was dying. Standing the whole time as the boat was swaying from side to side 12 feet. Yeah. Either way and sometimes more when we would when we would get hit by refraction. It was waves. pretty exciting though because being up that high, I got to photograph successfully more than I ever have in my life at Cortez. And I was probably my face was probably 30 feet up. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was about midway on most of the waves. So it didn't take away from the size. Right, right. Which is massive, you know. Usually, you don't want to be up too high on giant waves because it distorts. It takes away, it steals some of the size, like a helicopter angle will mm-hmm. do. Yesterday, I felt like it couldn't have been a more the best spot. <laughs> yeah, because if thirty-five feet was about midway. What it was, I was thirty feet maybe. I don't you know. It had to be thirty feet yeah. up. So yeah. that that was midway in the face of the waves. That was nice. It was um, just straight on. And the boat that we went out on, yeah, let's talk talk a little bit about that. It was a pretty classic boat. It was a um, sixty five foot Hatteras hull number one. Was that, that number for one that size? Apparently, oh, wow. Yeah, and our captain Todd was a knowledgeable cat as well. I don't, I don't, I don't think we could have been. And yeah, between you telling Todd. Where not to go. Where not to Begging go. Begging him where not to go. And then him having a lot of experience. He was a surfer as well as as a you know super experienced fisherman. It was apex experience. All yeah, the way you know what's fun was he had a lot of respect for the waves. He's got a lot of respect for staying alive, not destroying the boat, mm-hmm. like everyone would. But he's got no ego about understanding just to listen to me. Because I do know where I'm at out there, and you've seen it. You've been there, too. And we, we were triangulating all the time, but also talking to each other in a protective way, saying, look, we're in the right spot, right? And the videographer was kind of pushing to go deeper a lot of times, but he has, I didn't really talk to him about what we were going to do because I don't like going out there and arguing with people. Yeah, yeah. I just don't want to die. You know, I just, <laughs> right. and we're looking outside right now, oh, Chris, yeah, it's it southwest wind and pouring rain. Wow. A little difference than yesterday. What an amazing day. What it's an amazing pouring day. Rain. Look at this. It's, it's beautiful. Absolutely <laughs> I love it. I do too. Yeah. Was, well, we got what we wanted. Well, thanks heaps, Rob. I appreciate sure. the time. It's my and, pleasure, uh, Chris. This is Chris Dixon and Rob Brown signing out for Power Motor Yacht Magazine, and we'll see you guys on the water. Thanks. Heaps. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review or rating. Or you can share us with your friends on social media or on the VHF. Anywhere you spread the word means a lot to us. Thanks again, and until next time, we'll see you on the water. Without my love.